We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So as I started pushing into this verse more and more, I was like, oh Lord, I need this verse. This is good. And so there's a lot of good here. We're going to read it, and I'm going to give you one of my biggest tools I use personally for breaking down a passage. It's just, it's, let me tell you, it's going to blow your mind how I approach a passage like this. Okay, but let's read it first. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So that's our passage. No doubt. Really good stuff. No doubt. Here is my tool that sometimes chasts will even say, well, what do you do with this passage, or how do you think through it? Here's my tool. And unless you're like actually seeing my face, or, and in the con- you don't hear the sarcasm, but here's this amazing tool that I use. What's going on here? Like That's my question that I ask quite often whenever I get to a passage is, what's going on here? And so if you're ever wondering, how does a pastor think through a passage, what's going on here? That's it, right? Y'all, there is really a whole lot going on here. Whenever we learn to ask the right questions, this is what I try to spend a lot of time with my students on. Um, Whenever we learn to ask the right questions, we can get to the right answers. The problem is, to be quite honest, often we are very lazy at the engagement. We just want to read it and go, okay, yeah, um, some are going to depart. There's false teaching. I don't really struggle with that, so I'm just going to keep on going. But you and I need this. Listen to this. You and I either need it because we're going to face it like ourselves and struggle with it, or because we're going to be sitting across from somebody having coffee who's struggling with the exact same things that we see here. It's not always... God giving us these words simply for our own sanctification, but so that we can make disciples as we go also. And so we still need this. It's going to correct us along the way, I believe. It's going to give us great reminders of our faith that we have, but it also is equipping us so that you can go do the work of ministry in the context that God has given you. So I look at this passage and I just simply say, What's going on? Whenever you sit down to read your Bible tomorrow and you get to a passage, you can get to the end of the passage and say, okay, what's going on here? And you just start to move through it. Okay, so I could write a book on that, but it's one page long. All right. What is going on here? First, we see that in the, quote, later times, people will depart from the faith because of false teaching. Look around our world today. In the later times... Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In the later times, what you and I observe is that people will depart from the faith. I am one who may be heartbroken or shocked, into, but only to a little degree, but I'm, I'm rarely surprised whenever I see the statistics of how Christianity is no longer the, the chief religion or how ag- agnosticism is growing or the nuns or the growing sector and churches are dying. I'm not surprised by this. We're going to see that even Jesus speaks to it uh, back in Matthew. There's this idea that 2 Thessalonians, if you, if you wrote down 2 Thessalonians, I'll try to remind it, you of it here in a moment. 
But 2 Thessalonians is the, the passage where everyone looks for the Antichrist. And it says the Antichrist is coming. Well, it also says, but not until there's a falling away, not till the great apostasy. So I hold to that there will not be a great revival before the Lord comes, but there will be a great falling away in the end. So in the end times, there will be a great falling away. Now, here's a confusion, though. Paul says that in the later days, false teachers would come. Timothy is considered to be classified in the later days. You and I are just in the much, much later days, right? The later days and the end of ages and the end times begins whenever Christ's ministry on earth ends. It is not something that we can chronologically map out and do some sort of secret code in Scripture and discover something that even Jesus didn't know. What it is, is that Jesus says, when the end comes, then the end is happening, and I will come whenever my Father tells me to go. Until then, we are in the later days. And so what we see in Timothy is just kind of the kernel or the seed of what we are seeing more of the fruition of today. And it will continue to grow even greater with each day. So in the later days, that's where Timothy is. That's not necessarily the end of time. Um, Jesus is going to refer to the, the end of time or the end of the ages, and that is like he's referring to like that culmination of all the later days building up. Are we in the end times? Yep. Are we in the later days? Yep. Is Jesus about to return? Who knows? They were tarrying there, waiting upon him, and fearing actually that they had missed him, and we are still sitting here today studying His Word in great hope that He will come soon. But it may be that because of the great patience of God and His desire to see all reach repentance that we tarry for another hundred years or so. We have no idea when He will return. But when He does, may we be found faithful. That's our desire. Okay, so, but we are in the later days. We're in the later times. So was Timothy. It's really just that interim that we've talked about. We want to be sharpened by what we read in Scripture. But you have to know, false teachers have always been in the church. They've always been. Timothy is a glimpse at, um, at the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians. And we're going to see that here um, from Acts. But this young, early church that were false teachers. Paul is writing all these letters to new churches because they're all just like a decade or two old at the time of their writing. And they have false teachers in there. Make no doubt about it. There were the saints gather, Satan will be working. If you and I gather here today and we don't believe that Satan hates what we're doing and that he will not strive to distract us and discourage us in our gathering, then we are foolish. There were these old horror movies because I grew up watching scary movies. It was, it was scary, scary movies and Mickey Mouse, like one channel away. That's just kind of how I grew up. And in these movies, the evil was not allowed to enter the church. Like there would be this, this scene where the, the vampire, the monster was about to enter a church and it would touch the threshold of the church and then fire would like leap up and they would jump back and it was a holy place where the evil could not go. We see evil in the church in 1 Timothy. We know that evil can enter the church and divide the church. Satan does not love what we do. So we have to know that disruptions will come. We have to know that disunity will come. Discord, frustrations. Those are all the work of the enemy because he seeks to divide the people of God. Whenever we gather, he hates this. Therefore, we sing louder, we push harder, we pray, and we strive for unity because we will be a people who is his and we will not be deterred from that. 
but false teachers have always been in the church. Now, I want to show you something else. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14. This is Jesus speaking. I just think it's good to have context on the later days and on the nature of the enemy. I do believe that whenever Christ is being highly honored and exalted, then the evil doesn't want to be in that presence. And so we, we guard that as much as we can through prayer and through preaching and through praising. Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking. And now he's talking about the end of the ages. So not just the later times, but he's talking about the final end of all the ages. And he says, as, it says, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Jesus, to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war, and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations, not just people, by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, y'all listen to this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We hear the wars, the rumors of war. We see nations rising, and this has been going on as part of just human history. But what I want you to hear said by Jesus is that many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. You know, there were In Timothy's day, there were false teachers that were infiltrating the church, seeking their own selfish desires and leading some astray. It says back in 1 Timothy that some will depart. Jesus says that in the end, many will depart. Many will betray one another. This is part of the sign of the ages. It's it's heartbreaking whenever we see it in our family. It's discouraging whenever we see it on the landscape of the church. But what I want you to hear is that Jesus sovereignly knew that this would happen. He's telling you and me, not so that we can be discouraged, but so that we can have hope and be emboldened. None of this catches God or Christ by surprise at all. He is saying it's going to happen. Therefore, in the same way, 1 Timothy is kind of encapsulating that. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, go ahead and flip back there. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It starts with, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart. The Spirit already knew that some would depart. You and I grow discouraged. God does not. He knows all things. And He feels deeply and intimately and infinitely all those things. If it grieves you and me to see someone walk away from Christ, so much more Him who has infinite love for that person. 
Who knows what eternity looks like where you and I are just kind of barely grasping at it. But the comfort we have is that none of this is beyond God's scope. He knew. He knew and He came. Praise God that you and I sit here today. But may we be vigilant and may we be so committed to one another that should I begin to depart, then Trent steps in and says, Ricky, what are you doing? Right? That's what church membership and accountability is really all about. It's, about. it's about being accountable to one another and for one another. It's about that brotherhood that we have in Christ so that whenever one begins to step away, the other one just puts their hand on their shoulder and says, whoa, 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 right back here. We're going to keep going this way. Maybe a little bit sober. We're going to keep going. But y'all, Jesus, Jesus foretold it. And here's what I want you to, to know is Paul also knew at some point that he would have to write a, um, 1 Timothy 4. Go to Acts 20. In Acts 20, I want you to see what Paul wrote. So keep in mind, while you're turning to Acts 20, that Paul is writing to Timothy, who is overseeing the church in Ephesus. So, the Ephesian church. So whenever you're reading Ephesians, Paul is writing to the, the overseers there. This is the same Ephesians where Timothy was um, for an interim while he is at Ephesus putting things in order, making sure that they're doing everything right. Before Ephesians, before 1 Timothy, there was Acts chapter 20. And here's what we know. In Acts chapter 20, I'm just going to start in verse 18. He says, you yourselves, Paul, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And it, it does go on, now, but I want you to go to verse 28. His final words to him come down to this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He's talking to the elders in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or pastors or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Did you catch what Paul was saying there? Like very clearly, I've loved you. I've poured my ministry into you. I have not withheld anything. I've tried to model for you. I've given my tears and my blood and my energy. And whenever I leave here, you elders, you overseers need to know that I know that Fierce wolves will come in, and they're going to come in from among you. False teaching arises, and false teachers arise from within the church. That makes us uncomfortable. Makes us really, really fearful whenever we have someone that we have highly esteemed in ministry, and then we see them years later step away with a false doctrine. It hurts because we were committed to them. That was a brother in Christ. But false teachers arise from within. They might come like not from cross life, but they're from within the church is what I mean. But false teaching rises from within and it's to lead the sheep astray. Y'all, you just need to know that today that false teachers are scattered throughout the world and they are absolutely infiltrating the church. We'd be foolish not to know that. But here is your and my peace that I just want to go back to. The Spirit already knew it. 
This is a sign of the times that we are progressing toward the end of the ages. Therefore, be so oh much more deeply committed to the word and to one another. You and I need one another. I am not a pastor who is a CEO of a church and I'm a untouchable person in an ivory tower. I am one who has been called to preach and to oversee the flock of God alongside you. And I need the accountability also. Otherwise, false teachers arise and go their own errant ways and lead so many others. So for the love of me and for the love of one another and for the love of Christ, you need to watch your pastors and you need to encourage them and you need to come alongside them. And whenever they need correction, you need to lovingly do so. This is what we see in Scripture is that the pastors are available to the people and that there's got to be accountability. Now, Andy and I hold one another accountable and others like among you hold one another accountable, but false teachers arise from within because there's no accountability is what I'm telling you. They're all throughout, but you and I know that God is absolutely in control. Okay, so number two, what else is going on here? What else is going on is that we see the characteristics of false teachers. This is helpful. We know what these false teachers look like, and we also can understand what false teachers probably in general look like. I would make note of this. Maybe not, like I'm an auditory learner, so I don't actually make physical notes. I just kind of, you know, put it in the right mental document and then I file it into the right file cabinet so that I can go pull it out later. But we know what false teachers look like because it tells us right here. All right. You also need to grasp the first part of it. So now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. We've covered that. Watch this, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Y'all, false teaching is not just off. It's not just wrong. It's demonic and it's by deceitful spirits. False teachers are listening to deceitful spirits and they're teaching demonic things. Anything that is not in line with Scripture is fueled by demonic presence or demonic influence. We don't like to talk about that in like Baptist churches and especially in the South Bible Belt. Like, can you talk about demons? If there is a God and if there are angels, there is Satan and there are demons. The same Bible that attests to these things that we hold high and holy is the same Bible that tells us of the dark reality of a dark presence that hates us and hates his glory. There are demons. There is Satan. There is a deceiver. There is one who hates us and hates God's church and all that he has done in it. So I just want you to catch that. Why did they depart? Because they devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teachings. That's going to make a coffee meeting, by the way, a little uncomfortable. Like if you're trying to tell someone that's false teaching, that's going to come across a whole lot better than, you know, that's pretty demonic actually. So I don't suggest you lead with that one. But you need to know why in the world would this be so appealing? Because the spirit is, their spirits are so deceiving. We know from Scripture it says that even Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. He could deceive because he can present himself as an angel of light. And if Satan can do that, then how much more so his demons and his army? Okay, so what do we know about these false teachers? We know that they teach because they have fallen for deceitful spirits and demonic teachings. And they are highly convinced of these things. They are passionate about these things. They are fluent in these things. It's incredibly very convincing. Therefore, you have to know the word and I have to know the word. Otherwise, it becomes absolutely tolerable. We also know this. It is, quote, through the insincerity of liars. 
John 8, 44. And we preached through John quite a while ago, so I know you absolutely remember this first. But if not, I want to remind you, John 8, 44 tells us about Satan. He, Satan, Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Did y'all catch that? Satan is the father of lies and all that he speaks are lies. He deceives. He loves to deceive. He is a deceiver. We must be mindful that false teachers are only echoing his deceit. Oh, but he's a good and convincing liar. He really is. But get this, not only do they lie, they're hypocritical liars on top of that. It says the insincerity, what does it say? The, the insincerity of liars. So they're hypocritical. In other words, they, they don't just say one thing and do another one, but they say one thing, do another, and then maybe even say the other thing to make sure that this is, covers them. Their whole character is completely corrupt from the inside out. And here's the thing, they don't even know it because they become so corrupt. We're going to talk about that here at the end. Listen to what this, this scholar, he, he just nailed it. He says, an apostate, would, apostasy by the way, like we use that word apostasy. Apostasy just means one who's fallen away or the falling away or the leaving of the faith. Okay, so an apostate is one who has left. It says an apostate is not just wrong doctrinally, he is wrong morally. His doctrine, by the way, might be perfect. So an apostate is not just wrong doctrinally, he is wrong morally. His personal life became wrong before his doctrines were changed. In fact, it is likely that he changed his teachings so that he could continue his sinful living and pacify his conscience. Watch this. Believing and behaving always go together. So why do I say his doctrine might be fine and his, moral, his morality wrong? Because in a moment, he might have solid doctrine, but he's entertaining these things over here, and all of a sudden, he's going down a slope. Believing and behaving always go together, and it is very likely that it's the behavior that goes first and then the belief. It's why we need the accountability. It's why we have to watch one another and, and share life with each other. Look at this. False teachers have a seared conscience. It says those whose consciences are seared. Where I get to is how in the world could they even teach that? That's not even biblical. That's not in line with doctrine. That's not even in line with historical tradition. Like those things, like how in the world would that be okay for them to teach or do? Thankfully, there are men who are smarter than me and they walked me through this. The, the Plot New Testament commentary walks it through this way. Watch this. When a hot, y'all know what searing is first, right? You get a piece of metal and you get it to such a high degree and then you take that metal and then you can brand something with it. So I will not demonstrate this today. All right, you just have to use your imagination. But that's that idea of searing or cauterizing something. Okay. When a hot iron first touches the skin, the, the pain is very great. Like you, that moment of intensity, it's there. But then what ultimately begins to happen, that the pain becomes less because the nerve endings are burned away. They're destroyed. In the end, the hot iron causes no pain at all. I was like, oh, good. Somebody who walked me through it because I've never branded a cow myself. I just seen and I understand the concept. But then look at this. Y'all, our consciences are in a way so much like skin. We're sensitive in, in our first conscience. We can detect and we feel that sin and all that sin so incredibly deeply. But if some sin remains in us for a while, then we, be, we begin to gradually stop feeling that sin. 
It becomes a habitual sin that no longer bothers us anymore. Or we have this sin that has desensitized us to sin so that these sins can't be that bad. But when you and I were saved, you remember that moment of exaltation? We're like, oh, man, I am going to like I'm going to the nations. I'm going to tell everybody. And then all of a sudden, like in that high moment that we're in of that holiness, I've been brought into the brotherhood of Christ. I'm going to co-heir with Christ. And this is amazing. And then you have that first fall back into a sin. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Like, why would I even do that? And then a decade later, somebody's sitting there with you and they tell you about it. You're like, I know that's just going to be how your life goes for the next 10 years. You're never going to leave sin. It's always going to be with you. It's always going to be something you struggle with. We've made sin entirely too comfortable for us. If we're not careful, our consciences also become seared. But most definitely the false teachers, the reason that they can teach the way that they teach is because they quit feeling that sin a long time ago. The same... Same theologian says, eventually our consciences are so are no longer feel anything. They are destroyed. They are seared. And when that situation occurs, a man can no longer tell right from wrong and no longer cares. They reached a point where they don't care if it's right or wrong. It's just simply what they're going to hold to. Thus, he goes deeper and deeper into sin. Look at this other characteristic. This one's the one that, you know, I'm not going, that doesn't touch cross life, so we're good. All right. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Well, here we do not forbid marriage. We promote it. Um, Those, by the way, who got to do the premarital meal with uh, Zach and Maddie, we had their wedding yesterday. And so we got to celebrate that great occasion. And so they are married and it was wonderful. Um, We don't forbid marriage. We promote it. Um, We're not going to forbid any food. That's why we have a fellowship meal every second Sunday so that we can keep sampling and trying. So this doesn't affect us, right? Like we're good. We're clear. It affected Timothy, but we're good. Yes and no. What's the big deal? This is what you need. What's the big deal? This was called asceticism, by the way, like A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M. Okay, asceticism. Asceticism is like this really strict, severe discipline where, and it's usually done for religious reasons. So you might see this um, in a particular denomination, or if you watch, like, if you study church history and you see, like, um, monks who would devote themselves, and it wasn't even like they were devoted to holiness, it was like they were devoted almost to punishing themselves for the sake of holiness. That can be asceticism. Asceticism is whenever we severely discipline ourselves, severe is the big word, severely discipline ourselves for the appearance and the hope of holiness, not the actual reality of it. So what I mean by that is these false teachers said, oh, you have the gospel, that's good, but you, you can't be married, right? Or you can't be married because that's not going to glorify him. You know what? That's totally not scriptural. But I also want to say real quick, and I'll explain why, but God instituted marriage. He said it is good. It's not good that man should be alone. God instituted marriage. How dare we teach anything contrary to Scripture? I also want to say this, that the same God who instituted marriage is the same God who institutes singleness and that it's a good thing. Paul says that I wish everybody would actually be single like I, Paul, am. Not that Paul, but the Paul of the Bible, that everyone would be single so they're not distracted by all the marital concerns. Marriage is good. Singleness is good because both are for the glory of God. But whenever a false teacher comes in and says to be holier, you cannot be married. 
that's unbiblical, that's a problem. The restraint of food. This one we might miss um, quite a bit, and I would just point you to Acts 10. I'm not going to read it. But the catch here is that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law said you can wear certain clothing, you can't wear other clothing. You can, um, you can put wine in this flask, but not in this flask. You can't boil a, a goat in its mother's milk. You also cannot eat these foods because these foods are unclean. Like There's a whole litany of laws, and the goal of them is what was being missed. The goal of the law was to make them aware of a holy God. That was it. It wasn't so they would check the boxes, though they needed to for a while. It wasn't so they would check boxes. It's so that they would understand that there is a God who is completely unlike you and me. He is vastly holy for all of eternity. And your mind and my mind cannot grasp that in the flesh. But they were a people who were before the cross. You and I look back at the cross of Christ. You and I look back at the full canon of the Bible. We take for granted what they did not know then. They did not know a holy God at all. So the law is God communicating, a holy God communicating to a very natural, fleshly mankind that He created that I am holy and you need to know what that looks like. Therefore, He would designate that certain things were clean, so this is good. Train your life to be like this. These things are unclean. You don't need to do this. These things do not bring me honor because I'm holy. So the idea of the law was that it was to, to make them aware of what a holy God expected of a people who would be called by His name. Y'all with me so far? So then there were foods that they could eat that they could not eat. Whenever Christ came, when Jesus died on the cross, He absolutely died for our sins. Absolutely atoned for our sins. But He did not just merely die for our sins. That's the greatest benefit, the greatest blessing for us. But He did so much more than die on the cross for our sins. He fulfilled the entire law that you and I nor anyone else could ever keep. He made what was unclean fully clean because all the righteousness that was required in the law and that the law was pointing to, He fulfilled. The law ultimately made people aware of, I can't keep this standard up. I need a Savior. And Christ comes on the scene and He says, I am that Savior. And in trusting in Christ, all of your righteousness, cross life, all of your righteousness is fulfilled. It's done. Like, do, you, do you get that? Like, it's done. Whenever he says it's finished, it's finished. Not the moment where he was walking to the cross, but your salvation and all the righteousness that you would ever need for all of eternity, it is finished. You don't need to lay anything else to it. False teachers will come in and they will say, whether it's marriage or clean or unclean, they will come in and they will say, yes, you have Christ, but you also need to be doing this so that your faith will be full and faith will be real. That is not anywhere what we see. It's not anything but belief and faith. He died for your sins and for my sins because He deeply loves us. But He was shifting all of eternity and He was re reconciling everything for all those who believe in Him and call on Him and live according to His name. You need nothing else. And I could walk out of here today and there are going to be some of you who question, well, I know you said that, but make sure they remember you've got to have church attendance. You've got to be reading your Bible. You, gotta be... you need nothing else if you have Christ on the cross. 
Charles Swindoll wrote a book called Grace Awakening, and the thing that shook me the most is he said, whenever you preach grace accordingly, you should have that fear that people will go out and live a licentious life because they realize that there is that freedom in grace. The grace that he gave you was absolute unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. It wasn't by your works, and your works aren't going to be what keep you. The grace of God is that he loved you, and he came for you, and he holds you. Do I fear that if I walk out right now that some will leave here and leave a sinful, licentious lifestyle? I believe that if you are truly His, you won't. That whenever you get grace, you don't want to do that anymore. It's not that you avoid these things or you pick up these things because you're trying to earn His favor. You do these things and you pick up these things because you have been loved by Him. He's already given you His favor. But probably the most comforting thing that you need to know, the most clear teaching of Scripture, is that if you have Christ, you need nothing else. You're going to want it because it's going to assuage our guilt of I'm not living well enough. We're going to try and put ourselves back into that equation, which is what false teachers do. They want you back in that equation, and it works because it scratches the itch within us that we have to kind of prove ourselves. You have nothing to prove to Christ. He's already accepted you. He won't disown you. He'll never leave nor forsake you. It's finished. The adoption is full and He won't unadopt you. You're His family. He won't divorce you. He's there with you, holding you the entire time. But we are drawn to asceticism in our human nature because Satan deceives us and in ourselves, we want that opportunity to say, oh, but I, I can do this and prove even more. If that is your motivation, let me just encourage you. You have absolutely nothing to prove to Him. You and I try to prove ourselves to an onlooking world. We have nothing to prove. If anything, asceticism ultimately leads us down a negative road where we see the negative in most things, and we should be a people who are most positive. You were just saved from hell for all of eternity and given all the riches of Christ. How's your day going? I don't know. I mean, it's okay. Like, that's, that's kind of how I am sometimes. I'm like, I don't know. I've had better. I forget that he shifted all of my eternity and removed me from the domain of darkness and put, into, put me into his marvelous light so that I can proclaim him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's all about that perspective. But asceticism creeps in and it begins to restrict us. That's what was wrong. They said marriage is wrong. Whenever God said it was good. In Acts 10, all those unclean foods, God clarifies to Peter. Uh, Peter has this vision of all the animals. And God says to him, why do you continue to call them unclean? And I've already made them clean. So that's been done. I would still encourage you to read the Old Testament and read the law and understand that His holiness is so much different than what we've ever perceived. He is not a God like us. In our spirit, we'll understand it. But y'all, the Christian life is to be lived in the positive, not the negative. And the false teachers were leading it to a negative degree. All right, last thing. Y'all, we see the freedom that we have in God in the gospel. Like whenever we understand it is done, that's what Paul is pointing to in verse 4. He says, for everything created by God is good. Did you get it? Everything created by God is good. Now, well, I'm, never mind. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And, and this, is, this is brief, so y'all bear with me. 
What's wrong with forbidding marriage and, and restricting the food is that they were calling evil what God had already said was good. Anything that God has created, but I want you to understand anything. I'm saying anything that God has created and anything that God has ordained, and I'm saying apart from sin, right? Apart from sin, all things are for our enjoyment. Like that's the freedom that we've been given. We don't have to earn our righteousness anymore. We don't have to keep the proper restrictions anymore. We just have to cling to Christ. And whenever we can't cling to Him, He clings to us. He will hold you fast. Like we will not depart from His side because He will not let us go. But the good things were being declared bad. But He says God's Word alone can make all things holy and all things corrupt. Like it can go both ways. It, the Word must be the litmus test. Who am I then? in this world to say that something is a sin or something's not a sin. I'm nobody. I can't say that. God can. Whenever we get that question, who are you to call that a sin? I'm nobody. But God's Word says it, and He made all of creation, and He sets the rules. I'm just communicating to you so that you don't walk off this broken bridge up here that that is a sin. But everything, His Word corrects us. But this, this statement, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. This, by the way, is why we pray before meals. Right? We receive it with thanksgiving. I don't pray before every meal. I'm not always good at remembering. So your pastor is someone who's going, I fell at this quite a bit. Sometimes my wife has to lean over and say, hey, do you want to bless it? Because she's holier in that moment than I am. Sometimes my kids are like, Dad, we haven't blessed a meal in a while. We don't do it well. But our heart is that we're thankful. But that's, that's the idea is that we want to express that gratitude that everything that God has given us at this meal is good. And parents, can I tell you, though I've just confessed that I don't do this well, one of the things that your kids will remember decades down the line is if you eat together and you pray together. And you can combine them both at that moment. We sat down and my dad would say the prayer. Or one of us would say the prayer. It's a great discipling opportunity. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says. I love it. Helps me feel better. He says, you say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play in the opera. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I drop the pen in the ink. It's just kind of that, that spirit of thankfulness. As you and I go from here, that's what we need. We should be a people so thankful for the goodness of God towards us. But we're also mindful that false teaching is going to corrupt that goodness. And so we want to be on guard. And you and I have friends who are caught up in some of this false teaching. Statistically, they're just going to be. If they're not in it, then they know somebody who's in it. So you and I need these verses, and it explains why things are the way that they are. But take great hope that we have freedom. In the recognition that God is the provider and the purifier, the gospel will bear much good fruit within us. We don't have to worry about what we don't do and what we can't do. We're just worried about Christ. He's our greater affection. Y'all, just simple. Remember that Christ is in you. That was a mystery of godliness that came right before this passage. What is a mystery of godliness that's been hidden for all ages? Christ is in you. Because He died for you. That shifts us to a most gracious people. 
We are to be a people who are most humbled, a people most thankful, a people most prayerful, a people most positive. That should be the tenor of who we are. In Matthew 7, Jesus, and, and you can write it down, I'll read it to you. Jesus again warns of the false prophets. And He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, I'm sorry, cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Don't, don't go around, as Spurgeon says, with a theological revolver attached at your hip, ready to knock down every false doctrine. Maybe what the false teacher also needs is just to simply hear truth again. And we let the Word do its work. I heard it, I heard it put this way for our close. And, and y'all can go ahead and come on up. Here was the illustration I heard that I, I'm going to leave you with. Because while this was about false teachers, it also is applicable to many parts of our lives. But you and I would, would probably think like, this would never happen to me. I'd never fall for a false doctrine. I would never leave the faith. And the illustration I heard was something like this. Imagine that you are standing in a green room. You're in a room, the, the walls are green, the ceiling's green. It's a green room. I mean, it's green. Green, we know what green is. And, and you walk through the door, and as you walk through that door, it's a green room, but the slightest the smidge, the slightest shade of blue has been added to that green. But you see it, and it's still green. It's the green room. Like, you would never doubt the greenness of it. And you take it in, the walls, the ceiling, and you walk through the door into the, to the next room, and it's green. And what you don't know is that another light, very, very thin shade of blue has been added to it, but not so much that you detect any change in the green. It's still a green room. And you go through another door and another shade of blue has been added. And you go through another door and another shade has been added. And you continue this way until you finally get to like this last room. And somebody, and you're in the green room. And somebody walks over to you and says, here was the color of the first room. And you look at it and you realize that the card of the first room, that green does not match the blue room that you're in because it happened by shades and degrees and you never detected it at all. And so you look at the card and you look at the wall and you wonder, how in the world did I get here? You never notice because it was a slow drift and a slow desensitization to it. Now this is how we drift. It's by shades, it's by subtle degrees and the danger is that we don't detect our drift. And maybe that's, maybe that's been through false teachers, but maybe it's you've tried to adjust your Christianity or justify sins, but by degrees you've drifted from that joy and that nearness to God that you've had. We, I don't know. What I want you to know is that we're going to do a song of reflection. It's called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. That's what we proclaim. That's the mystery of godliness. But what happens when you realize you've drifted? Or by degrees you've moved further away? We remember the gospel. We repent of our sins and straying, and we return with the most thankful joy. You don't have to lay something up to God saying, I'm going to do these things now, Lord. I'm going to do this and this and this. You don't have to prove anything. You remember the gospel, you repent of those sins, and you return with the most, most thankful, joyful heart. And then you just walk in the newness of life. Go and sin no more yet again. 
And then whenever you find yourself in the blue room and not green, you remember, you repent, you rejoice in His goodness. Lord, we... Lord, I don't, I don't know who or what you communicated to, the, to who you gathered this morning. The prayer this morning was, Lord, you gather in today those who you know you want to be here. And Lord, your word has gone out. May it equip us. May it purify us. Lord, may it lead us in a way everlasting so that we can honor you. But Lord, help us to detect the false teaching that is so near us. Lord, help us to be um, confident that you are the God who knows these things. But Lord, would you show us our heart too? Have we strayed? Have we entertained what we should not? Lord, show us our sin so that we can repent of it and be yours. Your conviction is good because it means you have not given up on us. Lord, we love you and we praise in our son's holy name. Amen.